Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 31 of Swimming Upstream and the continuation of our trip around the Marlins minor league ranks to recap the 2021 season. In case you guys missed our first episode in which we checked in with the Hammerheads, the single A, the new single A affiliate, the Jupiter Hammerheads, uh, we are inviting on a special guest to each of these shows to give us the lowdown on the 2021 season at each level of the Marlins minor league system. Today on the show, I'm pleased and honored to be joined by John Rawson. He's the awesome play-by-play announcer for the new single A advanced affiliate of the Marlins, the Beloit Snappers. John, thanks for all your work this year, man. I made you a regular part of my week, you know, listening in on MILB TV, on my phone, wherever I could, even though I was out, I was always listening to you. You did a great job. Your first year in professional baseball, you. you just told me. Great to listen to you. It was awesome to meet you as well. It's, and thank you so much for agreeing to donate some of your time to come on and talk baseball with us. We really appreciate it. So, um, yeah, thanks for that. And, and how are we doing? Uh, not too bad, you know. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's been an interesting off season, and uh, yeah, I got the first professional season under my belt, and we'll see what happens from there. But who knows? It's been a lot of fun, and I'm excited to talk baseball. It's been a while. Yeah, for sure. I mean, these like start of the off season is always like the hardest time for me because like I want more baseball, and we do have the Arizona Fall League, but that's going to end soon, and then it's just basically right. the overseas leagues, which don't get a lot of exposure. So it's like. Uh, it's the tough time of year, but uh, at least we got the playoffs going on. So there's some, there's always something to watch. Right. So anyways, uh, yeah. Uh, if it, I mean, I mentioned it at the beginning, we talked to Ryer, uh, Ryer gardens where it's from the hammerheads on our first episode. He's their media relations coordinator and new promotions coordinator as well. Um, it was his first season working in that role as well with the hammerheads. He interned before that, but that was 2020 and the season got wiped out. So here we are again right. with you. And this was your first, your first season. So, um, first question, um, you gave me a little background kind of before we started, but just for the listeners that may not have caught one of your calls or, or, or have heard of you, um, you know, just, uh, you know, background getting started uh, in the business. And uh, what I really wanted to ask is just like setting yourself apart, right? Because as I know, and I'm sure you do as well, there's a ton of competition when it comes to announcing pro sports or broadcasting or whatever it may be. So yeah, quick background. And then what did, what do you think was important for you to do to set yourself apart and to get to your role where you're at today? Yeah. So I grew up in Ankeny, Iowa. It's the fastest growing city in the Midwest. It's a suburb just North of Des Moines, Iowa. I was about 15 years old. And I realized that any potential that I had of becoming an athlete was well gone and out the door being 5'11", a buck 70. So I had to dismiss that, decided what's the next best thing. Well, I'm good at talking and I like sports. So combine the two and tried to make a career out of it. Uh, went to the University of Iowa. That was really where I got my segue into broadcasting. We've got a Big Ten Network satellite that's there. So started doing field hockey, women's basketball, eventually transitioned into baseball. And with the longest season being baseball is a great way to make some relatively stable employment and get some internships in the summer. And yeah, it led me to, to becoming a pro broadcaster. And yeah, you mentioned a, a big thing. The competition is so stiff. There's a, a really high supply of broadcasters and a very low supply of jobs which certainly creates some interesting tactics by, by young men and women trying to get into the industry. And uh, my approach, I think, was a little bit different than many. Some people wait for their applications. They wait for the, the opening to show up, and then they send out the applications. While well, I had a master sheet of every affiliated baseball team after the reorganization came out and was sending emails 10, 12 a day, nonstop throughout the course of uh, the winter and into the spring. And it was April. It was mid-April, and I was probably the last broadcaster hired in affiliated baseball. And uh, it led me to this job and, and I really couldn't ask for much more out of a first opportunity to get to be in high A, no less. Yeah, for sure. I did an awesome job too, as I mentioned before, but, um, the other thing, just a quick follow-up on it, you know, your first year, 
you got a pretty exciting team out there. I mean, from, from the looks of it, I mean, really exciting young players. You opened a new stadium. You had that experience as well. So recap it as a whole in a couple words, if you can, was your first season on the job, everything you hoped? It was interesting. I think the word that I would use to describe it is it was intense uh, in, in all the good ways and all the bad ways. Yeah. The team had exciting players had the minor league home run leader. Uh, you've got a guy who's out there, Griffin Conine, hitting 450-foot homers over scoreboards. And then you've also got a team that's got a perfect game through 25 outs, up six to nothing, and loses an extra inning. And the next day goes out and, and, and rallies from a six-run deficit to tie the game and then lose it again in extras. So there was just so many intense games, so many intense moments, uh, intense hours. Uh, travel wasn't as bad this year. I've definitely experienced worse travel, but... Uh, just an all-around wild experience for everyone involved with the new stadium. Having, that's, I was having some conversations with some staff members, and we kind of came to the consensus. This might be the first time in affiliated baseball that a team has opened a ballpark in the middle of the year. And transitioning from Pullman Field, where the new crew who got there in February only had three months to basically uh, revamp that stadium, dress it up, and, and get it ready for the big prom night, and then move to a brand-new ballpark. Uh, that was a ton of pressure on those people. I really sat from the outside looking in the team's on the road and I'm getting texts about the new stadium. And I'm like, Hey, this isn't really my funeral yet. But once we got there, it was so rewarding and, and really exciting. Yeah, for sure. And you, you segue to this perfectly. Cause my, my next one, uh, I got a couple on the team as a whole before we get to some player specific um, is, is basically on the stadium, um, you know, big year, of course, huge year. Um, Begins, as we know, this, this, this partnership, I think it's a 10-year partnership between the Marlins and the Snappers and Blue Wahoos as well, which are, are Quint's teams that he owns. Um, you know, the stadium opening, I want to get to this first, um, bit delayed due to the pandemic, um, but then in the month of August, I think August 3rd, the beautiful ABC Supply Stadium, it's situated right there on the river. It opens its doors to fans and, and man, it, it looks great. I've heard great things about it from fans that are season ticket holders and that, that follow what I do. And they, they've said nothing but great things about the park. So we talked to Quint at the beginning of the year and he gave us kind of what he hoped the stadium would do. Of course, he's known before this for opening um, the park in Pensacola and completely remaking that city with the ballpark kind of at the forefront of that. So he kind of told us what he hopes the park does for Beloit, which was in a little bit of a different situation than the city of Pensacola, which he built pretty much from the ground up. He said he opened this park in Beloit, which Beloit is already a great, a great, was already a great place. And there's avid baseball fans there, but he had his own vision for the park and what he hoped he did. It did for the area. So, I mean, I know it's only, you know, a month, a month and a half that the park was open, but from the forefront, what, what has ABC supply stadium done for the snappers and for the community? Well, that's a great question. And I I don't know if you've ever been to a game at Pullman field. I hadn't until I first showed up there. And it took me back to my summer collegiate playing there, my summer collegiate broadcasting days, having spent some time in press box with no AC, there's not really walls, the broadcaster next to you is overlapping on your feed. And you make that jump to that new ballpark. And it's a huge change. Uh, players were hyped about it. You've got a, a, the biggest, we had the biggest dugouts in minor league baseball. I've never seen dugouts that big. Now, of course, they're built with the pandemic in mind, right? So they're, they're built for that sort of ability to, to hold that many people safely. But you talk about what it meant for the community and you've got a ballpark that's not tucked in residential areas where people are going to get mad when fireworks go off at 1030. You've now got a, a ballpark that's a downtown 
It allows people to go and funnel into businesses. It allows those people that eat at those businesses and, and you know consume their product to come and view our product. We drew, we drew 333 a night at Pullman Field. Uh, our biggest attendance was just over a thousand. Opening night at that new ballpark sold out 3,500. If that gives you a taste of what this meant to people. People go to baseball games for the experience as well as the sport. And if you're just a casual baseball fan, you're not going to go to Pullman Field. But if you're a casual baseball fan, you'll go to ABC Supply Stadium. And that's a big stick point. Yeah, great. Great answer. Um, I wanted to get to a, a quick follow up on, on the park. Um, you kind of already alluded to it. Um, you know, you open in basically at the end of the year. I mean, it's one month ago and now you're in a brand new park. So you kind of alluded to it already. But I just wanted to ask you, like, I'm sure there were a ton of challenges for the people that were in those roles, you know, behind the scenes with the stadium, but um, how did they make it happen? Like, let's just, let's just answer that question first. Like, I'm sure this took a ton of planning. You have it set for a certain day. It gets pushed back and then it finally happens. And from everything that we heard it, it from a fan standpoint, at least it seemed pretty seamless. It didn't seem there were like any huge hitches from the people that I've talked to. So it seemed that they did a really great job doing that in the middle of a season or at the end of a season. So how did they make it happen and, and what went into that? And, and, you know, you, I mean, I guess just to end on that question, you know, you're going to go into next year and you kind of already have the footing, right? You know what to expect, you know, right. what's going to happen. So you can go into 2022 and feel confident that, you know, you're comfortable, right? So rising to the challenge and then what it did for you, even though it was late, you're open now. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a comfortability factor, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, once you get those the opening days, the scariest day, right? Well, we did two opening days in one season. So, yeah. so I think this new staff certainly got prepared for that. But I, the challenge is there was a huge hiccup. And, and I don't know if the story's on public or not, but I feel like I'm going to tell it anyway, because it's a good one. I was on the road. I don't remember where it might've been Cedar Rapids. And it was the Tuesday game to start the series in Cedar Rapids. And I get a text coming through that says, we didn't pass pre-inspection. We have one week or we're not going to be able to open on the third. And we had already announced the date. There was some hiccups that happened after we had announced it that weren't planned for. And somehow, some way, stuff beyond me, these construction companies and, and CCI managed to get it done. And so a huge kudos to those guys working pretty much around the clock, huge staff when we were there, bringing out season ticket holders to come pick out their new seats. When I toured it to see the press box, they're scaffolding everywhere, people busy working around. It was impressive the fact that they were able to get that done, the manpower that went into that, and, and nonetheless, the money, fully privately fund stadium to get that all done. Uh, so just a huge props to, to Quint, Diane, and, and, and CCI for making that happen because, yeah, without them, uh, we're this, we would have seen a much different story with what would have happened had they not got through and passed the final inspection. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And I'm sure some great work and, and long, long late night phone calls and all that other stuff probably went into that. So uh, very impressive. And as I said, from a fan standpoint, um, people that I talk to, um, they love it. So uh, I can't wait to get there myself. I hope to get up there next season. We'll see if that happens, hopefully. Uh, but yeah, um, park looks amazing. Um, we talked to Quinn about it. He kind of alluded to the fact that they wanted to maintain kind of that, that classic baseball feel with the brick building, you know, so that's definitely there. You still have the history and then you have the modernization. You talk to players about it. I talked to Troy Johnston about it when we had our podcast with him and he was just like, man, it's night and day, <laughs> like going, going from Pullman to this, this brand new park. Yeah. And he said it was one of the nicest places he's ever played baseball. So yeah. Awesome stuff. Um, again, can't wait to get up there. So uh, it's likely going to happen next season for us, hopefully. But uh, yeah, the last thing on the team front, 
Um, you know, it's probably a big topic around the city right now. Uh, and it's been a big topic for you guys on Twitter and everywhere else. Um, next year um, comes the rebrand of the organization and it will be to one of these five names. You got Cheeseballs, Moo, Poker Pike, Sky Carp, or Supper Clubbers. So we know this, as I said, was met with a little bit of controversy with some, by some fans. But as Quinn told us, um, you know, on our podcast with him, he said that the Snappers will also still maintain the trademark for the Snappers. So they'll be able to still re-implement it, throwback nights, maybe some, some ideas getting thrown around there. Uh, but my question here on this is, um, you know, why, why now for the rebrand? And what do you think this rebrand will do for the club and to kind of excite people to get out to Snappers games? Good question. Uh, the big reason behind it is the new ownership group. Uh, when this team started way back when, before I was born, uh, the team was organized as a nonprofit. It had been running as a nonprofit for 30 years. And eventually that model wasn't going to work. And so that's when Quint and the new ownership group came in, took over, uh, designed this new park, built this new park. The rebrand comes as sort of a way of separating the new franchise, the new business. It's a business. It's a business that cares about the community. We, we do a lot of, of work with the community and, and nonprofits, stuff like that. But it's now not just a, a nonprofit organization. It's a business entity. And so we're separating the, the history of this organization with Dennis Connerton and as a nonprofit into and sort of carrying that legacy now into a new team, a new look. And, and you know, I, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not hard to see the controversy behind it. You know, you go on Facebook, you look at the comments, it's pretty easy to see where people's opinions on this lie. And when you've had something around for so long, it's definitely hard to get behind it. I mean, look at what's happened with the Cleveland Indians and their new rebrand. People like things that are, that have history to them, a little bit of, hey, yeah, I remember going and seeing Snappers games back in 1997, right? And it, things have changed. I think the time has changed. I think this is, it's now or never in my mind because this is the optimal time with a new ownership group to really become someone different than what the organization has been for so long. And it's meant so much to the community, but this is still the same. It's still the same team in a sense, you know, it's, it's, it's Beloit's team. It's Southern Wisconsin's team. It's Northern Illinois. This is a team for all those people still. And I think it, I, it, it might not work initially. We might see people upset about it initially, but when people start to go out and realize, okay, this is still, this is still our team. I think it'll change. It always does, right? Those rebrands, people, people don't like change. People are scared of change and I totally get it. But once people see what's, what's really going into it, I think they'll buy in. Yeah. I and mean, we've seen it a lot in the Marlins organization, um, you know, before, before the snappers were an affiliate, um, the AAA affiliate was New Orleans and they were the Zephyrs and they rebranded to be the New Orleans baby cakes. And everybody was like, what the heck is that? Like, why, why are they doing that? We've been the Zephyrs forever. This is, that's not New Orleans. Like they're taking away our history. Like everybody freaked out, but then it happened and everybody saw the logos and everybody got behind it. And everybody was like, yeah, that's awesome. And it really drove their merch sales and people got behind it. Same thing with Jacksonville. They became the jumbo shrimp when they were the sons. People were like, what are they doing? Then their whole business model came out, you know, with, with the family affordable fund, everything that they do and everybody got behind it and loved it. So yeah, I think, and you can even go to the Marlins when the Marlins rebranded to be the Miami Marlins and people were like, right. You know, we won two world series as the Florida Marlins. Why do you have to take that away? And that one was met a little with a little more controversy because the logo didn't do well, but uh, now with the new logo, people are loving that as well. So yeah, I mean, I think anytime this happens, there are going to be people that are upset. But as a whole, I think eventually people will come together and accept it and get behind it. So and I think that's exactly what will happen with you guys, as you said. 
So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see man. I'm excited to see which one of those options is the winner. I think they're all fun. I think they all say a little bit of something about the area from what I know of it. So um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's going to be awesome. And I think it's going to help for sure. All right. Um, yeah. So um, that's all I had on the club as a whole. I wanted to get to a couple of player specific on like the standout guys that we really looked at in Beloit that we were watching all year and said, right. you know, wow, he really stood out to us. So the first one for me is a guy that I talk about a lot on many shows. We've had him on the show personally, as I told you, um, Troy Johnston. Um, Troy is a guy for me that I started talking about when the season's before the season started, I was talk, talking to him on a couple of other podcasts. I was talking to Daniel about him. Um, we kind of go back and forth and pick out a couple guys that we could think could be like these, these sleeper guys that we think could do really well. And for me, mine was Troy Johnston because I just saw an extremely patient hitter from his college days, you know, knew what he was doing at the plate, you know, really, really patient, just knew how to get the bat on the ball and not too bad in the outfield. They've shifted him to first base as we know, which we'll talk about, but man, all I thought was missing in his game was power and, he showed that in abundance this year. I mean, tons of doubles. He's got homers. Did really, really awesome. A huge breakout year for him. He's up into top 30 lists. I mean, started with the hammerheads, hit 349 with the hammerheads, which he was old for that level. But, you know, you don't hit like that in Jupiter for no reason. And then he goes up to you guys and just continues, man, just continues building, continues building. So, yeah, my question on him is um, – you know, kind of out of nowhere, um, you know, <laughs> a guy that just kind of kind of came out of nowhere later on pick and just just took off. So for me, that's like my main breakout performer in the organization as a whole. So I just want to know what you saw from Troy and uh, yeah, uh, all his skill set and coming to fruition and adding in the power. Like I said, he's in Arizona doing well right now. So your thoughts on Johnston? Well, heck of a guess by you. Yeah. What a money pick. He, he was a stud. Uh, you've got a guy who yeah, Gonzaga was a good hitter, good good contact hitter, put bat to ball, walked quite a bit. But in his first professional season, you did see that power lack. And he showed up to us. We were on the road in Quad Cities, and it was just like, okay, here's this new guy who's probably going to play first base for us. It's a position we need. And he steps in, and he's just gapping everything. Doubles opposite field, hit, hit an opposite field homer that first series, ended up becoming player of the month, hit 337, drove in over a run per game. And you're sitting there, and you're like, is it? Is this the guy? Like, is this the guy the Marlins are, have been looking for to kind of fill a void in organizational depth in the infield? And I think the answer is clearly yes. Uh, his power that he's developed, I had a conversation with him about it. You know, I said last year your power or 2019, you know, your power wasn't quite there. What have you changed? And he just said the weight room. And he did a lot more training with that in terms of getting to the weight room, lifting big, and and stayed on top of that throughout the season. And we saw a player who flat out had the ability to hit in both get on base, put bat to ball and barrel up and hit for power. So really impressed with his skill set. And yeah, you mentioned the transition from outfield to first base, decent outfielder. Transition to first base is not easy. If you've seen Moneyball, you know, hey, watch, tell them how hard first base is. It, 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 this is not an easy position to play first base. And he stepped into that role and, and impressed me at times, handling hot ground balls, picking plays over at first and really kind of running the infield especially with the youngsters that were there and Mourinho's at shortstop and kind of filler guys at third base. That's impressive. And I was really impressed with his leadership, impressed with the way he handled himself and, and nonetheless impressed with his on-field performance. Yeah. 289, 393, 473 with the snappers. So overall an equal, I think 300 hitter for the whole year. So very impressive in his first season in full season ball because uh, he was in 2019 right. with Tavia. So yeah, after a missed season comes in, has a breakout performance, extremely level-headed guy. We had him on the show. You've talked to him as well, John. 
I mean, just, I think he understands the science of hitting, you know, he described it to me. He's like, yeah, when I was a kid, I was just a cage rat. I was, I was always behind the batting cage and stepping in the cages whenever I could with a bat in my hand and just, just learning the extreme nuances of, of how to get the bats, the ball. So I love scientific players like that. Um, it's, it's definitely a guy to watch um, an out of nowhere guy that you wouldn't think before this season, you know, was capable of what he did um, with the position shift and, and everything else, but really cool guy. Like, like him a lot. Um, and yeah, we're, we're excited for what he is going to do next year. I, I think he could be up in double a next year, but uh, we'll see. Um, they don't really have a ton at first base, just like you guys did. And so I think, I think double uh, a is a possibility for him next year, but a pleasure to watch him grow. Um, the next one I have for you, John is uh, Connor Scott. Uh, Connor Scott, former first round pick, got off to a good start, kind of went down with an injury, I believe, in mid-May, um, made it back at the beginning of June. He struggled in that month. Um, he hit just 217, 323, 325. Um, in comes July. Uh, you can see he made some big adjustments, and through them, he started to really produce. Um, he had hits in 18 of 21 games played that month. Uh, then in August and September, the consistency was, was off the charts, not just in games, um, but from at bat to at bat, you know, he's racking up multiple hits in, in more games, you know, as, as those months went on um, from August 1st through the end of the season, I have the numbers. Um, he had 17 multi-hit games over that span. He hits 314, 353, 547 with a 141 WRC plus. So John, he's not talked about a lot anymore for whatever reason, but he's just a guy that's improved steadily month after month after the injury this year. I was never personally like out on Connor Scott and saying that, you know, he can't reach the ceiling that he's supposed to reach as a good outfielder and a good player, left field player. So I, I was never really out on him. I liked what I saw from him in terms of improving his swing as well as putting on weight uh, in spring training. And then he translated it really well after the injury. So yeah, thoughts on Connor Scott and how he was able to, you know, come back from that tough start. Well, yeah, you mentioned, I saw the picture as headshot from Jupiter in 19 and then saw him in 2021. He filled out quite a bit. I think it's important to note, and you brought it up. He's, He's a first-round pick out of high school. The kid's 21 years old. He's one of the younger outfielders in this system, regardless. And, and so I think for people to kind of bail on him, you know, like I, I saw it too, you know, to bail on him at this age, it, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. He, like you mentioned he had an injury and really was in and out of the lineup in early June. Never didn't play a full game actually in the month, in the first couple weeks of June, finally worked his way back in mid June and, uh, yeah, struggled in then and, and in July. But when the call-ups started to happen, when Conine started to go up, when Meisner started to go, now you've got a young guy who needs to be the outfield leader of your team. He's got to man the outfield well. He has to complement Mesa or Victor Victor Mesa, who came down and work as a tandem outfield at the top of the order when you've lost your two best hitters. And he stepped up and he answered that call. I was impressed with the way he handled himself. He's a young guy who's definitely got room to grow and, and a lot to learn, but was impressed with his skill set. And, you know, I, one thing I was interested by it, when you look at it was his base running numbers, his stolen base numbers. He's a guy who gets a lot of credit for his speed, but he lacked those stolen base numbers and percentage this year. But he still still handled the outfield well. I think at times displayed an arm that surprised people, particularly me, uh, was a tool that he didn't really have a lot when he was younger. But he's, he's got that tool a little bit now. So he's a guy who people need to buy into and give him the time to develop because I think they'll be surprised at what he can be. The problem is how loaded that outfield is with the Marlins system. You have so much competition, AAA, AA, you've got it all up and down the system. He's a guy who I'm, I fear could get lost because people will bail on him because, oh, he's a first-round pick, 2018. He's not panning out. 
I'm, I'm concerned for that, but I certainly hope he plays the part well and he can find himself in a good spot. Yeah, definitely agreed. I mean, with everything that the Marlins have, there's going to be guys that you just say you either trade them or, you know, we, we know the Marlins are planning to be active in the offseason um, or you just they just kind of fall off, as, as you mentioned. So, yeah, um, I definitely think that that Connor is a guy that that can that can make it happen and reach the ceiling. And he kind of started to show it for me at least uh, late in this season, as you mentioned. So um, I, I, I hope he continues to do well. I mean, he's in the development camp right now um, with Marlins and showing some pretty, some pretty good things there as well. Of course, they're hitting against the pitching machine, but he's getting the time with the, with the major league coaches and around the organization. So that's cool to see. Um, I think next season, if he is still with the Marlins, um, I would probably say he could start. It's going to be so weird what they do with all these outfielders. If everybody stays, I, I, I'm trying to guess the alignment, like, kind of make up lineups for next season. And with outfield, it's really hard, but I could see him starting yeah. um, 2022. If he is with the Marlins, I think he could start back with you guys because of what the Marlins will likely move to double a, or he could start in double a. Um, it just depends on what he shows in spring training. And I know I talked to people. I think uh, part of it. Yeah. I, I, I think part of it too relies on, on JD or yeah. JD has been flooding, flood, fluttering all over the place. And yeah. No matter where he went, he hit. And so it depends on what they believe in him. He's a little bit of an older guy, mm. uh, but he's got some skill set. So with you've got a guy who has been a flutter minor leaguer and yet still balls out at every level. Yeah. Then you've got a young prospect who rises up like Connor. If you've got all five of those guys in double A, someone's getting left out from reps and you don't want that. So someone's going to get the, the, the short end of the stick in regards to that. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious. It could be Connor because he's younger. And you give him that time and let the other guys start to go up and he can kind of fall in behind him. But also he could end up getting double, go to double a and end up outperforming some of those guys. I mean, this is the same team that challenged Yuri Perez, the youngest player in minor league baseball to play with the hammerheads. And we saw what he did. So it'll be interesting to see how they construct on the lineups next season. And as you know, talking to people, a lot of those decisions come down to like, the last minute in minor league spring training. And I think that that could be one of them, as you mentioned, Connor's younger. So maybe he stays back in, the, in single advance. They get the older guys up. Definitely possible. I, I think that that's kind of where I would be aligned with you on that, but we'll see what happens next season. <laughs> uh, this season, I think he did very well as we alluded to. Um, I got one more positional and then I got a pitcher and then we'll do the quick fire before we, as you like to say, get out of town. So <laughs> the one more positional I have is Will Banfield. Um, you know, this is a tough one. Looking at this guy's career overall, John, there's really no getting around it. He struggled. Um, let's talk about this season, though. Looking at the splits, we did this with 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 Connor, who steadily improved month after month. Unfortunately, John will just kind of like treaded water. Didn't didn't really improve much from month to month over the season. I, I was hoping to see it in the months went by. I was like, OK, he's going to figure it out this month. He's, he, his average is going to climb this month and really it never did. So. Yeah, uh, right around 170, 180 all year. He showed a glimmer, I guess, in August. He went seven for 25, but then he went down with an injury. Um, you know, has shown some flashes with, with power. You know, we know he has good power, but it's translating that and being able to get your bat on the ball. And this guy just has not been able to do that. So, man, it, it's tough to see it that he just can't pull it together with the bat because the defense is elite. I mean, he has extremely, like, majorly ready starter written all over him defensively, but with the bat, I don't, it's not, it's hard to even call him a backup. I mean, it's, it's, if he can't improve with the bat, it's going to be tough to see much of a major league future past maybe a backup catcher for him. Um, maybe a guy off the bench. Maybe I, I, I mean, it's at this point right now, you know, he's still just 21. So still time he's in Arizona to get more reps. 
But the numbers, just, I mean, 32% K rate, that's a career high. He did do better with the walk rate, which was 8%. Um, that's also a career high. So that's good, but just not much bats ball. The swing looks long to me. Um, you know, it's volatile, especially with, with high school catchers, right? The bats always the last thing to come around, but at this point in the career, you want to see it. So um, yeah. Um, I really hope that light just clicks off. And at some point, you know, hopefully as soon as possible, it works, but I, I need to get your thoughts on your looks of him. Uh, obviously, you know, the defense, you can tell us about that too. But um, what does this guy have to do to improve offensively? Because that's where his career, it's riding on that. Yeah, he's a guy I feel for. You mentioned that in August was turning it around a little bit. He had stretches in in June and July where he'd throw together five, six games with a hit. And then, yeah, would fall off the boat. It goes down with that injury, takes a pitch off the wrist, finishes that game, and then never to be seen again, you know, in Beloit. just an impressive dude, uh, a leader, a clubhouse leader. And I think one thing to note is that he will stick around as long as that capability allows him to. When you've got a guy who is as good of a leader as he is, who the clubhouse respects, he's a guy who will bide his time in the system until, yeah, either A, that bat comes around or he ages himself out of it. Uh, now, honestly, I, I watched the, the development of him, and it was about midway through the year, and I saw a total overhaul in his swing. He had had that big, long foot kick with the load up on his swing and, and yeah, a long swing that he really extended through the zone trying to get power on it. And by the end of the year, it, that swing had shortened up a lot. He didn't really have much of a kick. It was a lot more torque versus actual momentum push. Uh, I really can't tell you what it, what it is that he has to do other than I agree. It has to be done at some point, but it sucks because we saw a guy who did take that step in August and we never got to see it out and he didn't get to see that out. So I'm certainly hoping that that missed time doesn't give him a step back because yeah, defensively he is elite. He's the best catcher in high A, no question about it. He is up there with the ability to catch in the major leagues right now. The difference, the reason that he's where he is, is the bad. Yeah. And like I said, hopefully he figures it out at, at some point. Uh, more reps is what I want to see. And he's in Arizona. He's probably going to go to spring training. He was in spring training this year. He was kind of just there for the experience. So didn't really get many reps. I think he got into like one game and I don't think he even got in a bat. So he was just there for the experience. Mattingly said that to us. So anyways, um, I hope he comes to spring this year and they, they let him get some time at the plate. Right. So uh, the more reps, the better for him because I, he's still 21 years old. So there, there's, there's time, right. I'm not out yet, but it, it's, it just sucks to see him continue to struggle with the bat because defense is so good. Anyways, um, we'll move on. Um, pitching. Uh, the one guy I want to ask about here, MD Johnson. This guy, when me and Daniel were talking about him early this year, I was literally referring to him as wild thing because he was the epitome of effectively wild with the hammerheads. Um, 42 innings pitched, you know, 77% left on base. So very clearly struggled with his control because of that walk rate, which was just so, so incredibly high. So, yeah, obviously the control was his problem, um, but he was able to strand guys on base and get around damage. Like, that's what limited his ERA, and that's eventually what led to his call up to Beloit. But the control, that wasn't going to work against upper-level hitters. I didn't even think against guys in Beloit. So he joins you guys in Beloit, and what happens in 59.1 innings, his K rate is pretty much the same, but the walk rate is all the way down to 11%, and his ERA shrinks down to 2.58. So clearly he found something. Um, his control, right? So not overpowering. He's low nineties, change of slider. It's not, like I said, it's not like a blow it by you guy, but good size. He's like six, six, 200 with some tricky mechanics that caused some deception for him, I think. 
So the only thing for me that I look at and say it's a negative for the season or maybe something that's not sustainable is his BABIP was 202, which is very low with 300 is the average. So that's probably going to come up at some point. ERA will probably rise with that. But even if his ERA is in the high threes, that's a usable starter, right? So yeah, um, probably not a guy that's talked about a lot. Um, but I did want to mention him here just because of the improvements that he made with the control. And then again, with his funky mechanics, he's a guy that's able to remain effective. So what'd you see from him? Um, how he was able to put it together and definitely his repeatability, which was the main thing for me. First start, he showed up to Beloit through six innings, walked just two guys after looking at the numbers where he walked 37 and 42 and a third, I think was his, his numbers when he was in Jupiter. So I had a conversation with Bruce Walton, veteran pitching coach, and said, what did you see? And he said, I didn't see a lot of the remnants that we heard that we would get from him in Jupiter. And the conversation eventually trickled down to the automated balls and strike system. And this is important to note that the walk rate in where Jupiter is in the low A Southeast is substantially higher than it is anywhere else in the minor leagues. And some might say that's level of play. I would argue that it's simply the fact that your catcher can't buy you a strike. When you've got that system, your catcher can't frame that pitch that might be just off the edge to look pretty good. And that's a big note. And it's something that I think really helped him. You've got catchers back there like Will Banfield, Dustin Skelton, who were two strong receiving catchers. That changed the game for him a lot. And yeah, effectively wild was the term I use on him a lot. Even when he did have points with Beloit where his command just disappeared off the face of the earth, but he still would go five innings, no hits, no walk or no, no runs and, and four walks. So impressive guy, uh, a good dude, lanky body, really odd delivery. Like you mentioned, really herky jerky. And I think that might contribute to it when you've got those wild mechanics, there's a lot of room for error. but at the end of the day, when you look at the results, they're pretty dang good. You can't be upset about that. Yeah. Here's the numbers to call it out with Jupiter, 25.7 K rate, 19.8 walk rate. So again, like I said, with the walk rate, like right at 20%, which is not yeah. sustainable. Um, and then with Beloit, 24.9% K rate. So slightly diminished, but not bad. I mean, you can't, you can't be mad about that. This is last innings too. Um, and then the walk rate, 11%. So he found something for sure. Um, and those mechanics make him tricky, even though this, this stuff's not fiery. It's not a guy that's going to throw hundred miles an hour, but it's a usable guy that I think could have a, a back end starter ceiling or at the very least a bullpen floor. So I like MD man. Um, seems like a cool guy. So yeah, definitely an interesting guy to follow and dig into his numbers. It's go look at his fan graphs page. It's ridiculous. Anyways, um, I got one more. Uh, we're coming up on the end. I got one more. And then the quick fire, the last guy I want to get to is George Soriano. Um, George Soriano, another arm that really intrigued me this year, got a late start to the year because of an injury started and extended. And then he went to Jupiter before going to Beloit was super solid all year. I'm um, 3.43 ERA, 1.35 whip. That's 89.1 innings pitched. If you want to dig into his stats a little bit closer, higher walk rate during his time in Jupiter, not as bad as MD, but 12% walk rate with Jupiter and down to 8% with the snappers. So stuff is pretty good. Um, also not overpowering. Um, I don't really think he's that blow it by you type pitcher, but his stuff is solid. Um, you know, he sits like 92, 93, he can hit like 95. I've seen him go to best secondary pitch. I think is a slider has a change up too. So again, not overpowering, but really repeatable. And his, his ability to control it, I think is what sets him apart. Um, yeah, it's really low walk rates and just doesn't, doesn't give up free passes. It looks like he attacks hitters really well. 
So yeah, another guy that's not really talked about a lot, especially over a lot of the other pitchers in the Marlins organization, but thoughts on Soriano. I think he had a good year despite getting the late start. Yeah. Big biting slider. That's the way that I would describe his style. He wants to put you in that count where he's going to come with that, with that slider and doesn't matter if you're righty or lefty, that thing is going to creep up on you and it's going to break away quickly from a righty and right in on your hands to a lefty. So we got a lot of weak contact with it and a lot of strikeouts with it Had multiple double digit strikeout games in Beloit uh, really impressed me with his ability to up that strikeout rate from 2019 to 2021. Uh, he, he pitched quite a bit in 2019 and didn't get a lot of the strikeouts this following year in 2021, much more impressive and sustainable strikeout numbers that he threw up. And he's a young guy. Uh, still, I think could, could, improve quite a bit that changeup is a little weak i think if he gets if that slider is not working he tends to struggle the starts where he didn't perform well was when the slider wasn't being commanded effectively and he had to lean on that changeup for his secondary caused him to get hit around give up some homers so yeah he's a guy who i think is interesting to watch like you mentioned and that slider's big but if he can't command it he can be in some trouble yeah for sure agreed that slider's got to be working for him it's definitely his best pitch um, fastball is not enough to get by on its own. So yeah, agreed. If he's commanding that slider though, it's going to be good. And another guy that I think could be back end. Um, so yeah, uh, that's all I got for you in terms of full length, John, but, um, everybody has to face the, the quick fire round that comes on the show. So this is just five, uh, quick, short, short question and answer format. I ask, give me a quick answer and uh, we'll let you get out of here after that. So, uh, if you're ready to go on this, uh, I got five lined up first one. Uh, broadcasting mentor or somebody you looked up to when you were starting your career as a broadcaster? Uh, John Miller, San Francisco Giants, a guy I listened to, and uh, Ryan Lefebvre, Kansas City Royals. Nice. nice. All right, we'll go on. Second one, best thing to eat at the new ABC Supply Stadium? Oh, that's a good one. We get press box food catered. It's solid. Uh, but if we're talking just down in the field, uh, tacos or nachos, I'm, I'm, I'm classic like that. Agreed. Nachos is always a go-to for me. All right. Uh, third one, favorite moment or play that you called this year? Ooh, Thomas Jones grand slam to tie the game or the whole entire ninth inning of that 15-5 Wisconsin game that ended as a 15-13 game. Uh, that was just a wild game that ended how, the way nobody thought it would. Nice. Nice. Thomas Jones, another intriguing guy that we didn't get to, but maybe next time. All right. Fourth one. Um, you know, a lot of stuff happening, you know, next year with the, the park, the rebrand, your second season, obviously behind Mike, and then you're going to get probably some of that next wave. You've already seen it with Fulton and Perez and guys like that that are coming up. You're going to, it's going to be an exciting 2022 season. So if you can pick out one biggest thing you're looking forward to, it could be from a team standpoint or a personal standpoint in 2022. Uh, in terms of team standpoint, I'm looking forward to seeing Yuri Perez take that next step. He was so solid. It's such a young age. I think he could be a guy who didn't catch a lot of attention, but should have. And second, personally, yeah, I'm just looking forward to getting another opportunity going out there and uh, developing the skill set. Nice. Nice. Did a great job this year, as you mentioned. Um, and then the last one, this is all, the last one we got before we let you go. Um, I'm asking this to everyone that comes on the show in this series of episodes. Um, it's a scale of one to 10. How confident are you in the Marlins minor league system as it sits right now, organizationally at all levels? We know trades may be coming, but in terms of what's here right now, confidence level. Mm, I'm going to go with a six and a half. I think the infield needs some work. The outfield's so good, pitching solid, but there's no infield depth across the system. It's a problem. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There is some longer term, but you know, those are young kids. They right now, yeah, play. right. Guys who are guys who are five, six years out. I think that yeah. there's a few of them, but if yeah. you shorten that up to three or four, there's right. not a lot. 
exactly right. That's why the Marlins are talking about with Miguel Rojas. You may be looking at him, you know, staying at shortstop, which I'm okay with, but um, you know, it's, it's not that franchise altering player in terms of on field skill set. but we'll see what happens. Um, the Marlins can get creative in the rule five, um, you know, maybe some trades, definitely some trades incoming. So it's going to be a fun off season to follow. We'll continue to do it here as you guys know, but that's John Rawson guys. He's the awesome new play-by-play announcer for the Beloit snappers. It was a joy to listen to him this year. Um, please catch him on MILB TV, or if you're in the Beloit area, um, you can of course listen to him on the local radio. Um, fantastic, fantastic stuff, John. I really do appreciate you donating the time to come on uh, here as the off season gets going after the grind of a season, I'm sure for, for all of you guys. So I really appreciate it. Um, it was a pleasure meeting you and you're welcome back anytime. Man. Hey, absolutely. I appreciate the kind words and thanks for having me on. Awesome. So there you go, guys. John Rawson recapping the Beloit Snappers 2021 campaign. That'll do it for episode 31 of Swimming Upstream. We'll see you guys soon to recap the uh, season for the other Quinn Studer related club, the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. And me and Daniel DeVivo will be back soon with an update to our consensus top 100 prospects list. So stay tuned for all of that. And we'll see you guys next time on Swimming Upstream.